was to live a godly life in a pagan world, to live a holy life among them. We know from this letter that the Christians it was written to, they were scattered all over the place. And we know that from chapter 1 in verse 1 where it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia. Which means, since they are spread out in so many groups, oftentimes you'd imagine that they would be small and isolated from a Christian community. It would be unlike a lot of the communities that we would find in this nation where there's, there's some sort of Christian background or some sort of nominal Christianity that is there. But not where these Christians were. They were in a wicked world. They were also very sad. As we read again in chapter 1 in verse 6, Peter says, "...though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations." And they were in very hard times and suffering and sad, sorrowing because they were Christians. Because they lived a certain way that was different from the rest of the world. But now Peter is writing them, he's writing them this epistle, this letter. He's telling them not to turn back. Not, not to compromise their beliefs in the hopes that their, their sadness or their sorrows would be lessened. He's, calling, he's encouraging them to continue on and to live holy lives. And we see that this is what He is imploring, what He is commanding them to do from, verse, from chapter 1 again in verse 13, where we read, "...wherefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ." As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And Peter here is giving them this command because that the opposite was the temptation. The temptation was to live, as it were, invisible in a pagan world. But if they continue on and even strive to live holier lives, things could get worse for them. Especially if they become bolder. It's more, more apparent to the world around them that, that they were living holy lives. And well, oftentimes we don't, we don't find ourselves in a pagan environment as they found themselves in. The world is continually turning to paganism in this nation and in many places. And it is hard to be a holy Christian. It's hard because we have to keep saying no to sin. We have to keep saying no to sin when, when the world around us accepts it. When it's, it's normal. It's not even something that has to be debated. It's what people do is that they walk in sins. And we even hear the devil tempting us. The temptation to, to have a little fun, to indulge the sin. We've had a hard, hard day, a hard week. We're on very difficult times, and it's hard to get from day to day to lighten the burden, indulge in a little sin. Just, it's, it's all right. 
I fear we often, or at least we know, we know what it is to hear that temptation. And perhaps what it is to indulge in that temptation. To try to sin, to lighten the load, and to lighten the burden. But if we have, we know that it doesn't lighten the burden. It doesn't make things easier. It makes, it makes the burden heavier, and it makes life harder. And we know that we have to live holy lives. As Christians, we know that to be true. But how? How do we do that? How do we live more? How do we be more like Christ? And what did Peter tell those Christians so long ago that they would live more holy lives? What truths did he expound to them? Well, he told them about Jesus. He told them truths about their Savior, things that, that are true and will always be true, regardless of the circumstances that they found themselves in. And that brings us to the words of our text today. This is found in verse 7. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. And the word therefore in that verse is pointing back to what, what Peter has already said. But he's summing up everything that he has said. And he's saying, if you believe these things concerning Christ, concerning Jesus, then he is precious. And that is the remedy for our temptations and for our trials, to see Jesus and to be able to say, He's precious to me. As our hearts are filled with love for our Savior, for His love for us, our desire to sin, our desire to indulge in the things that we know are wrong, they fade away when we see Him, when we see Him for who He is, and when we're able to say, He's precious, He's precious to me. And that's what we all need today. Let's look then at what Peter said before this, therefore, that made Jesus precious to these believers that he is writing to. That's why I give the title to this study, to this sermon today, The Key to Holiness, Christ's Preciousness. The Key to Holiness, Christ's Preciousness. And the first thing that, that makes him precious, in the first place, he makes us his temple. And we look at verse 5 of chapter 2. We read, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house. But what is the spiritual house? That's why we look at the first place at its purpose. And Peter is referring, he's referring back to the temple that was found in the Old Testament, the place where God dwelt in the midst of his people. And this, this building was unlike any other building on the face of the earth that ever has been or ever will be. Because it was a place that was divinely inspired by God. He told His people that this is how you fashion it. He told them exactly how to make it. And if they were to lose the temple, if the temple was, to, was destroyed, that would mean that the people had lost fellowship with God. That would symbolically be what it, what it meant. But we do not have this temple today. And that, that's the contrast that, that Peter is bringing up. Is that we, we are the new temple. Is that we are being built. Built together and inhabited by God Himself through His Spirit. 
You remember the, the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament temple. If a man was to go into that veil, except for the way that, that God told them to go in, he would be struck dead because he was coming into the presence of God. He was coming before him in an unworthy manner. But now, you and I, we come before the exact same presence that was in that holy of holies. The place where men would fall down dead. But we go, we go and we meet with the Lord in a spiritual way. We don't have a temple. We don't have a particular room. But the God that we are coming before is the exact same God that you'd find in the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. And this is what is found, or at least the, the emphasis here that Peter is bringing up is what is found in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 22. We read these words. Speaking of Christ, "...in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit." And those are words that are impossible for our finite minds to fully comprehend, but they are, it is a truth that we would do well to meditate upon, that we are being built together to be inhabited by God, that God Himself is within His people, that He dwells in us by His Spirit. And when we kneel in prayer, when we come before the Lord to pray, we're entering in, as it were, to that, to that Holy of Holies, and we have the attention of the God of Heaven, the One who dwells within us, dwells within His people. So we see from that the point of, of us being the temple is that God would have fellowship with us. That we would know what it is for God to dwell in us. But, but Peter, and this he goes on, and looks at his foundation, the foundation of this temple. In verse 5, let's notice some language here. Peter says, he uses the term lively stones in referring to us as we're being built together. And that's the same word that's found in verse 4. Or Christ, he's called the living stone. Then you find something similar in verse 6. It says that Christ is the chief corner stone. And that was the stone that was placed at, at, at the corner of the building. It was the foundation that would support all the stones that were built upon it. Every stone would be placed above that foundation that sits below. And what Peter is telling these believers with this, with this imagery is that they are being built on Christ. That God is fellowshipping with them is because they are built upon the work and the person of, of Jesus Christ. Of God humbled himself and became a man to, as it were, become our foundation, that we all would be lifted up to have fellowship with God. When he completed the work that was given to him on the cross. He truly became that foundation. And a building is, is only as strong as its foundation. And if we have communion with God, if we have fellowship with God, we can only be as sure we have fellowship with Him as we are sure of our foundation for that fellowship. So our foundation 
our assurance that we have fellowship with God is as strong as the work of the Lord Jesus Christ because He is our foundation. And this is, this is something that is true regardless of anything that happens. Regardless of how we have failed. Regardless of how much we don't deserve to be called the temple of the living God, the people in, in which God dwells, Christ is still our foundation. Regardless of how much we think that we have messed up our own lives and we've made too many mistakes and we can't have fellowship with God, you know, we can't open His Word and hear His voice, we can't come to Him in the place of prayer, we can't dwell with Him, no matter how unholy we think we are, Christ is still our foundation. And because of that, we still have fellowship with God. We still can come before Him. And we still are accepted before Him. And this is what makes Jesus precious to us. We see also, looking at this temple, we look at its builder. If you have a temple, you have a builder. And it is true that we are, we are responsible for working out our own sanctification, of striving to run the race that is set before us. But Peter he's here focuses on a different side of that truth to encourage these believers. In verse 5, it says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. And in the Greek there, it's saying that they were being constantly built up. Constantly. And they were, this was happening by God. He is not saying you are constantly building yourself up. He is saying God is constantly building you up. The phrase, the term includes nothing of their own works. Be just because they believe on Christ and because they are resting on Him as their foundation, God is building them up so that He can dwell in them, so that He can more richly dwell with His people. And the early Christians, you, know, you think of the Christians of that day, they would have cause to worry if, if that wasn't the case. Many of them lived near the time when, when Christ was alive. Many of them, you know, being dispersed perhaps and being few in number, didn't have the best preachers. They didn't have the best teachers. Perhaps didn't have a fully assembled Bible as we have before us today. And so it comes with the fear then we don't have the tools to build ourselves up. We, there isn't what's there for us to do this work. But God was the one who would ensure that they would be built up. So we ask ourselves what stands in our way? Trials? or even our minds being burdened. You, know, you come to the place of, of devotion or the place of prayer. And you open up your Bibles and you think that you can't get anything out of the Word today. You can't benefit from it. You can't feed from the Word because something that's wrong with you. You're too tired. You've sinned too much or you have failed. But God is the builder. God Himself is the teacher. And He is the one that will build up His people. So we look at our foundation. 
we look at Christ dying on Calvary, we look at Him triumphing over the grave, the King on high, and our foundation here below, that is the one that will make sure that we have fellowship with God. The one that will ensure we will never know what it is like to be separated from God the Father. But He will always dwell with us. He will always be in His people. And that is what makes Christ precious. It's what made Him precious to these believers. It's what makes Him precious to us. But we go on. We also serve through Him. We look at verse 5 again. Still talking about what Christ has made us. It says, you know, He's made us in holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And in this, you see a picture of, of the temple worship. You had the picture of the temple, but now it's the picture of the temple worship. And he is pointing to believers as not only the temple, but now we are the picture of the priesthood itself. And we are offering sacrifices. And what are these, these sacrifices? I think you find them summed up I would call them spiritual sacrifices in Romans 12 and verse 1, where we read, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So every part of, every part of our bodies, every part of your life and my life can be offered to God as a spiritual sacrifice. We were... When we came in here this morning, we, we praised the Lord. We sang unto Him. Well, that was a sacrifice. That was something we were offering to God. When we pray, we're offering something to God. Offering praise in that. When we give tithes or even perform any good work, we're coming before God and we are, we are offering something to Him. Or even when we, are, when we do anything to our fellow believers. Remember the text giving a cup of cold water in the name of Christ, we're offering that spiritual sacrifice. So two things about these sacrifices. The first of which is they're accepted by God. And those words are the first that we find in the end of verse 5. We read that our spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You can imagine the believers in the early church would be discouraged by their own meager and small efforts. Oftentimes, as it is with us, all that we can often see is our own failures. Is that oftentimes our own works are, are, so, are so pitiful. Our own offerings, how can I offer this to God? How can He accept this? It's pitiful. You know, many of, the, of those living in that day could have even heard the sermons of Jesus Christ, even perhaps could have seen him while he was still alive. But in his preaching, in Christ's preaching or in his teachings, they could have, they could have failed to, to resist the sins, to love as he commanded them to love. You know, he gave such encouragements and their hearts were so filled with zeal when at first they heard it, but now. You know, the Savior's gone and they try to live out the life that He preached and that His, His servants preach. But their life is a disappointment. 
So there's the fear. God's not going to accept this. It's a disappointing sacrifice. But the answer for those early believers to those, to those fears is the same answer for us today. It, it's true that our works fail, that our offerings to God are they're far short of what we want them to be, of what we know that, of what they should be. Oftentimes we want to be zealous. We want to wake up in the morning and we want to, we want to just want to read our Bibles. We want to want to pray. We want to have a burning heart to, to win the lost. And we don't want to have fear in our hearts. We don't want the coldness that we often experience. We don't want to just serve out of a sense of duty. Just be able to check off the list. So I've done everything that as a Christian I need to do today. But even though those things, oftentimes they're true, and our works are often very pitiful, those pitiful works are the offerings that Christ purifies, that He causes to be acceptable to God, that He washes every stain away from and causes them to shine like flawless diamonds. Those works that we think are so pitiful when Christ is done with them and offers them with us to God, they are pure and spotless. This is the God that in offering in the Old Testament of the, of the Lamb, the Lamb was not to have a single blemish. It was not to have any spot. That was the sacrifice that was to be offered. It was to be perfect. And that was the only thing that could be accepted. But this God that only accepts perfection accepts our works, our sacrifices by the work of Jesus Christ. And He rewards us for those sacrifices as well. He doesn't just accept it and then forget about it. He has a record. And with that record, when we enter glory, there will be a reward for all of His people, for the rewards that we often despise, for the works that we often despise. And on that day, we will look to Jesus we will be willing, as it has often been said, to cast it all at His feet. To cast everything at the feet of Christ because He has made our works acceptable to God. Well, there's more than just, just being acceptable. The second thing is they're delighted in by God. It's, it's possible for someone to just accept something. Just to, just to receive it and to paint on a smile or to receive it in, in some sort of coldness. But that's not how God receives our sacrifices and our works. He takes joy in them. He is joyful in them. You find this in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 16, where it says, To do good and to communicate, forget not. Those are very simple things. To, to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, there's the language, God is well pleased. Has anyone ever given you a gift? And, and when, they've, when they've given you the gift, you don't have to paint on a smile. You, you just you love it. It's as if they got you exactly what you wanted. It's something that just fills a need that you had or a, or a delight that you had just perfectly. And you're just naturally overjoyed. You don't have to paint a smile on. You don't have to fake it. That's how God receives our sacrifices if I may say humbly, as it were, with a smile and with joy. 
upon his face. That's something we ought to consider when we are discouraged in well-doing. When we're struggling to live the way that we should with others. Or when others are so unappreciative or they seem like they, they don't notice our works at all or what we're striving to do. Where you're working and you're laboring in the church. Think about a place as small as this. And you're laboring, but it seems that if you were to label, someone asked you to label your ministry, you'd have to say, it seems fruitless, a fruitless ministry to me. Well, Christ takes what we would call a fruitless ministry that is done to Him, that is done for His glory. And He purifies it to the point where God rejoices in it, where God joys to receive it. And we ought not to grow weary in well-doing. Because we have a high priest whose name is Jesus, and he will see everything that you do and everything that I do for him. He will cleanse it, and he will offer it, and God will receive it with joy. And that is what makes Christ precious to us. We come thirdly, finally, to that we are the third thing that makes us precious, or makes Christ, rather, precious is we are secure in Him. If we look at verse 6, the end of it, it says, He that believeth on Him, that is Christ, shall not be confounded. And here, Peter is quoting a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 16. And the, the Hebrew word there for confounded has the idea of someone being made suddenly afraid and they have to turn and run because of this fear that, is, that has overcome them. And so coming back to our text, if, if you put it in the positive rather than in, in the negative, you could, you could word it, He that believeth on Him shall always be secure. And from the context of, of the prophecy in Isaiah, what he's talking about is salvation. It will always be secure in their salvation. Let's look at two places, then they'll be secure. The first is secure in life. Being a Christian, these early believers, it came at a very high cost. Many of them could lose their businesses. They lose their income. They could lose their friends. No one wants to be around these, these Christians. They could be disowned by their own families. And they could be threatened even with, with punishment threatened even with death. And under this great pressure that the church was facing, would they lose their foundation? Would their faith fail? The world is trying to drive a wedge between them and Christ and to get them to go back into the world to forsake everything, to get them to lose Christ. But the Holy Spirit here says no. They will not lose Christ. They will not be confounded. Though they would be troubled with fears, fears about the future, even perhaps fears as we, we too face, fears about our acceptance with God, they would still be secure. Our God has not changed since these days. We can lose, we can lose things in this world for being a Christian. We can lose esteem. People can look upon us, look down their noses at us. We can be ridiculed or insulted. But we cannot 
lose Jesus. We cannot lose him. He keeps us secure in the palm of his hand. Even when we have failed the Lord's people, his hold of us is still secure. When the devil and all his angels, you know, including the world and everything, comes and tries to separate us from him, tries to get us to lose Christ, to pry us out of his hand, his hold of us is still secure. And we feel that when we feel like our own sins have made us so vile that Christ doesn't want to hold us anymore, that he would rather open his hand and be done with us, he hasn't loosened his grip one bit. We are still still held in the hands of our Savior. And with His infinite love, He will hold us fast every day of our life. Through every storm and every difficulty that we will ever face from now till our dying day, He will not let us go. And that is His promise to us. One last thing is that they are secure in death. Most people living in that day, when it came time to die, who or what they had their trust in would be tested. Oftentimes for them, it was in cruel gods who used men as as their playthings. And that was the way that it had been for hundreds of years. But now there's this new religion to them. It's Christianity, and all these people are putting their trust in the God-man named Jesus. So the world, when it, when it came time for them to die, the world's going to watch and see how they came to die. And what did they see? The world saw a people that were unashamed of their God. A people that even as they were being taken to be burned alive, thrown to lions, or slain by the sword, they oftentimes went rejoicing, singing, knowing that Christ was soon to deliver them from from their captors, even if it was through death. And that is because they knew that Christ had them even when they came to die. And in their death, in, in that moment, He would not let them go. For you and me here this morning, the day of death is going to come for us all. It's inevitable if the Lord tarries. And when it comes, the Lord's people, they, they have at times, there's been fear that comes with death. There's fear of the unknown, fear of, of pain, fear of, of what will come, what it will be like to meet the God of all eternity, the great I Am. What will it be like to stand before Him? But when that day comes, when it comes time for us to cross over Jordan, Christ will still be there. He will cross over with us, right by our side. And when we reach the other side and we stand before our Creator, the One who has fashioned us, Christ will still be with us. And with His righteousness, we will be declared for all eternity just. And if it's Christ that brings us to this place, is He not precious to us? Come to a close. As we look at all that Christ is, and this isn't even everything. There are are so many more things throughout the Scriptures full of what, what is Christ to you? What is Christ to you and to me?
not what is Christ when all is going well, or what is Christ when things are, when we are, are good enough for Him, or when we think we are, but what is Christ regardless of anything that happens in our life? Well, as we have seen, He is the foundation that, that brings us into the presence of God, for Him, for God Himself to dwell within us. Christ is the one who faithfully cleanses every single one of our sacrifices, our work that we do unto God and to His people. And He is the one that's going to hold us fast and bring us home, regardless of what comes. And as we see how He is precious to us, and as we turn then to look at the temptations that face us to sin, I hope that there is a fire that is been lit in our hearts or that has been rather inflamed to cause us to turn from those sins and to do the things that please, that please our Savior. To say no to sin and to live a holy life for Christ, for His glory. Our motivation to do so this day is because He is precious to us. I believe that is the key to a holy life before the Lord this week. When, when we can honestly say, Jesus is precious to me. And I pray that the Lord would, would cause this to be your confession this morning, throughout this week, that Christ is precious. And that knowing this, we would live for Him. Amen. Let us close in prayer. Our gracious God, our eternal Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before Thee and we've heard Thy Word, Lord, it has come in the weakness of a man trying to expound Lord, these matchless words of the Holy Spirit. But we ask that they would be a prophet to Thy people. Lord, help us to see Jesus, everything that He is to us and for us. Help us, Lord, help us to say He is precious to me. And in so doing, Lord, help us to turn from sin. Help us to live for Thee. Lord, this is our desire and the prayer of all Thy people gathered here this morning. And so we ask it of Thee. You are the only one that will bring this about in our hearts. So Lord, be with Thy people now. As they go throughout this week, be with them. Lord, give us a day of rest, we pray, this Thy day. Cause us to continually praise Thee and to think of Thee. For we ask these things in Thy name, for Thy glory. Amen.